you are listening to the Space Commune Podcast. I'm Alex. I'm here with Fox. Today we have on Robert Bryce. He's at robertbryce.substack.com. He also is the host of the Power Hungry Podcast and YouTube show. He's been writing about energy and power for more than 30 years. Uh, he's written six books. He also do- made a documentary called Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. Robert, uh, we've been listening to your podcast for a while. It's good to have you on. Welcome. Thanks a million. Happy to be with you, fellas. So, Robert, so one of the things that uh, we leaned on quite a bit in our work and trying to get people to understand uh, what's going on with energy in our country and in the world uh, is your some of the, the information you put together on what you call the anti-industry industry. Yeah. And how, you know, the, the narratives around energy are always, oh, that's just fossil fuel propaganda. You're just a fossil fuel shill. You want you want energy and electricity to be reliable and you don't want rolling blackouts. You're a shill. And it turns out actually that there's way more money in being against industry and energy than there is being for it. Um, so I'm just and, wondering. Isn't, and isn't that remarkable, Alex? I mean, you know, that for years, this has been the narrative that the left, and I'm going to say this broadly, and I'm. I'm not, I'll get my politics out first. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm disgusted. Right. And so I don't, you know, I don't have pox on all their houses. I don't want to be a part of anybody's political party, but the left and the democratic party has been dominated by this alt energy crowd, right? The alt energy industry, right? Which has been backed very strongly now for years by the Sierra club, by the natural resources defense council, by environmental defense fund, by, uh, uh, friends of the earth, by union of concerned scientists and, and, and then they're backed up by groups like Media Matters and, you know, these other outfits. And they have continually claimed, oh, there's just so much fossil fuel money. There's just so much money behind all these people that, you know, these people who are just, you know, they're just uh, stand-ins for, you know, who name your energy company, right? The reality is that the amount of money that is behind these alt-energy NGOs, and I think this is a real sign and one that I think is the correct word is the decadence of American society is that there is an entire sector of the economy that is dominated by these big NGOs and they have the uh, they're very closely tied in with the big media outlets and they are seeking policies and implementing policies that are undermining the the basis of American prosperity and yet they have for years claimed oh there's so much money on the other side no it's a big fat lie and I'm yeah. really proud of I'm glad you brought that piece up it was on my Substack the anti-industry industry they they're spending on the na- in the neighborhood of four and a half billion dollars a year. It's four and a half times. If you look at the top 25 NGOs that are involved in this, they're spending roughly four and a half billion dollars a year. It's four and a half times the amount of money is being spent by the top 25 NGOs that are ones that I would say support what's called, I would call traditional energy. So it it really is an asymmetric fight. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I thought that was a great way of framing it, calling it asymmetric warfare. And you bring up the left, and you're absolutely correct to do so because the left often uh, cries about, uh, you know, the big capitalists and the big moneyed interests, right? But then if you actually break it down to the, the big money interests, well, the bigger money interests are actually more opposed to industry than they are for it. You know, I see study after study of, oh, the fossil fuel comp- uh, industry paid for this study and this study and this study. Okay, well, the the industry... Uh, that is, and I don't think people even think of it. I'm glad you coin it as an industry because it isn't. It's an anti-industry industry. It's it's an entropic. It's a what eating away at what industry exists. But there's way more money in that. So if people are concerned about all well, the rich and shills for for capitalists or whatever. They and, should and, be looking more at the environmental sector, right? Well, and I don't that I don't call them. I, I've given. So I don't call them hydro, fossil fuels. I call them hydrocarbons. I don't call them green groups or environmental groups. They're alt-energy NGOs, right? Yeah. They, these are pressure groups. They are climate activist groups. They're not, in, in fundamentally, and I'm an avid bird watcher. I hike all the time. I love the outdoors. They, yeah. These, what the policies that these outfits are promoting are anti-environment. Yeah. And that's the part that, to me, is just so remarkable about how we've gotten to this place. They're promoting these all renewable schemes, and I will name them the Natural Resources Defense Council, the Sierra Club, Union of Concerned Scientists. They're anti hydrocarbons, they're and, and they're anti nuclear. Well, then what do you have left? You have renewables 
that will require covering vast quantities of, of land across the country. And not only are you destroying landscapes and rural communities, the amount of mining and the amount of metals, minerals, and magnets that are going to be required to make all of that happen stagger the imagination. Yeah, and yeah. so it's it, this, this decadence that where we've arrived at, you have this entrenched industry that is being backed by, and I will name them, the billionaires in America, right. Tom Steyer, M uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, Jan uh, uh, Marie, uh, Laureen Powell Jobs, uh, John Doerr. They're pumping hundreds of millions of dollars, Jeff Bezos, into these into the anti-industry industry, and and no one is really writing about it. I mean, I am because I think it's so important. But this is a very dangerous um, industry, well, I think, about, in America. They care about the environment more than we do. <laughs> well, they they sell this as that that there's only one issue to be addressed, which is climate change. Don't you know there's and a climate crisis? And that there's only one way to address it, and that's with renewable energy, and it's just flat wrong. You know, yeah. so if we're going to be serious about re addressing climate, we have to be serious about nuclear. But these, this industry has made its career by being anti-nuclear. Well, that's what makes me think that it's not really about climate change or about environmentalism in the end. It's really not about these issues. And I think that you're right to say that these aren't actually environmentalist groups. Um, we shouldn't be calling them that because if they were, they'd be all for nuclear power, not shutting it down uh, because uh, nuclear power is technically environmentally friendly. If you want to look at the actual metrics of carbon emissions and footprints, pollution, things like that. Um, and, and, so materi makes... and material inputs. And that's the other yeah. key issue here. So the footprints, I mean, look at what the Natural Resources Defense Council, I think they should be prosecuted for their activity in New York. And the closure of the premature closure of Indian Point. Yeah. What happened immediately after that plant was closed? Gas fired generation in New York went up. CO2 emissions went up. And and, and consumer bills went up. And yet they claimed, oh, we're going to do all this with renewables and we're going to do it with offshore wind. There's only one method of, of creating electricity that's more expensive than offshore wind. And I think that's burning American currency in the boiler. <laughs> I mean, it's just... I think Absolutely. that's what they're actually doing is they're 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 setting money on fire with this whole renewables. Uh, what what they're doing overall to our electric grid is they're literally setting money and wealth of our nation on fire. And you know, you mentioned we are some of those people whose bills got we got a thousand dollar bill last winter. The uh, energy utility told us one of the reasons was because they shut down Indian Point. Right. And so it, it's it's crazy to me. And and you're right. They, they should be prosecuted. Indian Point or I'm sorry, uh, Riverkeeper should yeah. be prosecuted. The problem is they're the prosecutors. They have the most high. They, that's what their bread and butter is, is prosecuting uh, the industry. And you make a really good point, too, um, in one of your Substack essays is that um, they don't have at the end of the day, they don't have to do anything. Right. All these NGOs, they don't have to produce anything. They said the point out problem. The grid operators have to keep the lights on all the time while fighting these wars against the rhetoric, the NGOs, the in you know, the, the academia, the media. Whereas the media doesn't have to produce anything. Well, and that's a key point, and I'm glad you brought that up, Fox, because it's exactly right. It's an asymmetric fight. So these NGOs, all they have to do is promote policy. So Let's look at what happened in California. So the Sierra Club and Rocky Mountain Institute, another outfit that got millions of dollars from Jeff Bezos um, and now has a budget of over $100 million a year, if memory serves. They have been anti-hydrocarbon and anti-nuclear for decades, and at both the Sierra Club and Rocky Mountain Institute. They were instrumental in passing uh, or getting the city of Berkeley to uh, ban the use of natural gas. Well, so they, they, they've instituted a policy in Berkeley and then numerous other cities, of course, in California followed that. And now we're, you know, we've had these gas bans across the country. But what has been the effect of that? Well, they pass a policy. So they go to their funders and say, hey, look, we passed a policy. Give us more money. Whereas, the, as you point out, Fox, the, the electric utilities and the energy companies in general, the oil and gas and coal companies, they have to deliver molecules and electrons and they have to do it every day every day of the year, and they have to do it reliably and affordably. And so it's an asymmetric fight. These policymakers don't have to produce anything in the real world, in the physical world. And this yep. is one of the things that I think is the real split in American culture now. It's between the people who make things, fix things, grow things, turn wrenches, and the 
I will use this term, the elite academics at Princeton, Stanford, et cetera, at Middlebury College. I'm talking about Jesse Jenkins, uh, you know, Mark Jacobson, Bill McKibben, promoting yeah. policies that undermine the integrity of our electric and, and energy systems because they don't have to deal with any of the physical realities of the world. And I think yeah. that's a really dangerous situation. Yeah. Well, you, and you look at uh, the origins of the modern environmental we live in the Hudson Valley, um, so we are right by where you know the the devil was birthed, which is <laughs> scenic Hudson. You know they they fought a giant uh, hydropower plant or hydropower storage plant. It was the Storm Kings the Storm yeah. King project, which yeah. uh, the, it was really the beginning of the NRDC, if memory serves. And look, we love hiking. We go hike. You know, we've been to Storm King Mountain um, across the river from there. It's Beacon Mount Beacon. You can see. Beautiful views of the river from there, but I, I would have loved to be able to also hike and to see big, beautiful uh, hydropower plant. You know, lots of green. You can put lots of trees around it, lots of greenery. The water, I bet, would be beautiful, and you, you know, you could see it. And just to know that, like, oh, that this is providing hundreds of jobs to the local community, good union jobs, and we're helping keep power affordable for everybody. And guess what? Like that, that could even be a giant renewable energy battery. If you want to, be, if you want to play around with solar panels and wind, you know, that, and save up the energy for a rainy day, that's a great place to put some of the energy. Sure. Um, but yeah, we're in the we're in that this area where this stuff was really uh, born. And something that I've noticed when I, when I look at the demographics of people that come out hard against anything that's proposed. Since then, there's been multiple nuclear plants proposed, all shut down. They shut down Indian Point. They blocked another hydropower proposal. They blocked the Peaker plant proposal, which would enable their renewable stuff. You know, a gas-powered plant that could turn on and off quickly. Um, locally, that was blocked too. They blocked a battery plant. And when I look at the demographics of these people, I'm not going to say, you know, white or black or age or anything like that. All I'm going to say is that these people are people who will never apply for a job for the rest of their lives. These are people who are completely unconcerned with production, with the idea of anything being affordable. They're set. Their life, they're, they're set. And they've made it their life's mission to prevent the next generations of people from having anything. They're well, just, they, they're I'd, I'd, put it, I'd put it a little more, I, I, I'd summarize what you're saying, Alex, and just say, it's about class. This is yeah. all about class. And when you look at the climate change issue as a concern, and I'll be, what's my, what's my position on climate change? Climate change is a concern. Mm -hmm. It's not our only concern. We have to balance our action, our efforts, our spending on climate change with other issues, including employment, including the stability of the economy, including our need for transportation, because we have to have transportation. We don't have transportation. We don't have commerce. We don't have commerce. People don't have jobs. Yeah. So- there, but yet there is this absolutism that has to be confronted head on of the climate catastrophe saying, well, no price is too, too high. Well, I think there are prices that are too high. And this idea that, oh, well, this is our only concern. No. Let me, I'm from Oklahoma. When one of the states that has been hit hardest by the fentanyl and opioid crisis, really? 100,000 Americans died of opioid overdoses last year. Yeah. That's a crisis in America. Yeah. A million Americans died because of COVID. That's a problem. Now, is climate change a concern? Absolutely, it's a concern. But what about all the other concerns we have in our country? What about our federal debt? And yet, what are we seeing? We're seeing 300, almost 400, 500 billion dollars being thrown at alt energy technologies that are may result in some reduction in CO2, but they will not solve global climate change. Yeah. But why? But what is this about? I, I think it again, follow the money. What are yeah. we seeing? This is big banks, big business, big law firms opposed to average consumers and in particular rural America. And I hope we can talk about that as well because of the land grab that's underway in rural mm -hmm. America by these big corporations for solar and wind projects. Yeah. No, we we, we went to um, an event last night where we heard from some people who are a community of rural people who are basically in New York State. They're, they're taking over the state so that they can just fill it with solar panels, you know, to save the environment, which is insane. It's, it's destroying rural communities and it's really sad. Um, and, and, and the rural communities are saying, wait, we care about our environment. And then you've got the environmentalists telling them to ruin their own environment for the sake of the environment. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. 
Um, and it, it's completely done. You're right. It's completely done at the expense of, of rural America and the flyover states where we should actually be more productive and, and have. Well, and, and it's and it's occurring and it's occurring too because you see the the disparity in incomes, right? The you know rural Americans are generally don't have as much money as urban Americans, and they're fighting to protect what's theirs. And you're in New York, and this is again one of the epicenters of the backlash against this, the expansion, the sprawl, energy sprawl of solar and wind. And what has happened just I think it was two years ago, the California, the New York Assembly passed uh, Article ninety four C which gives state bureaucrats in Albany the the uh, the authority to Bigfoot local communities right. and force yep. them to take yep. wind and solar projects they don't want. Yep. And a Called similar up. bill, similar me- measure passed in Illinois, similar p- measure passed in California. And so uh, look at that. I mean, just from a, a pure politics standpoint, some of the bluest of the blue states in America have passed measures that effectively give state bureaucrats the ability to, I'm going to say it, we're on a podcast, to fuck rural Americans yeah. and take their land. And yeah. I think it's just that simple. Yeah, it's, called, it's called the Office of Renewable Energy Siting. Yeah. And and with, what as it was presented last night at this event in Poughkeepsie that we went to, uh, they have not once said no to a renewable development. Yeah. Despite right. people's repeated you know, claims, letters, uh, testimonies that they've submitted, uh, th- this office hasn't changed, deviated one one inch in the steamroll. And the thing and is, about and it's it, the, and it's the, and it's the alliance of government and business, right? Mm-hmm. Which I don't use the word fascism. It's very dangerous. It's overused. It's over. But but that is one of the definitions: is the alliance of government and industry, right? And so, but call uh, I call it I call it climate corporatism. I think that's a better yeah. word, right? Or better phrase, better description: climate corporatism. That you have the these cor- big corporations in the name of climate. Seizing rural land and at the at the expense of rural landowners because they can justify it with climate change, with the issue of climate change. But what are the what are these big corporations getting? Just massive amounts of tax credits. Well, I mean, I think you you've exactly nailed it. Um, and you're right. This this idea of a state operating on behalf of corporate interests, private right. interests, rather than yeah. interests of the people. You know, this idea of steamrolling uh, communities in order to get things done. If if the government were getting things done effectively on behalf of the people, that would be a different story. But they're getting things done on behalf of private corporate interests, or as you said, on behalf of the climate. Which what even what even does that mean? What what is the climate? The climate is weather. Um, and and you know, uh, I like I like what Alex Epstein points out is that we've actually fossil fuels and all these things have actually made us more climate resilient, resilient, and that we're actually getting better at, quote unquote, fighting climate change by just becoming more resilient to whatever the weather happens to do at, at any given moment. So this idea that we have to weaken ourselves for the climate seems completely backwards as well. So much of this stuff is like so backwards. Well, and I'll, I'll, st- I'll state it a slightly different way, Fox, and I, th- I agree with what you said. So we're faced with this issue of climate change. Okay, I'm willing to accept that. I'm willing to cede that point. If, if, and so if we're facing more extreme weather, hotter, colder, more extremes, more sustained extremes, why in the name of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph would we make our most important energy network dependent on the weather? Exactly. I mean, it's just, wait, wait a minute. We're, you, so... We're told catastrophic climate change. We're told this. Okay, well, you may be right. And if you are right, and I'll we'll cede that point. Okay, got it. Yeah. This is what you say is going to happen. Then why would you make our grid, our electric grid, which is that I call the mother network, the network that upon which all of our other key networks depend, yeah. why would you make that dependent on the weather? You want that system to be absolutely independent and resilient and as as, as bold and as, as uh, impregnable as you possibly can against the the changes in the weather. And yet that's what they're doing. And, you know, we took, there was a lot of criticism. Oh, how dare people in Texas talk about wind and solar failing during winter storm Uri? Well, they did. When, when, the, when the grid was on the verge of collapse, all the wind and solar investment in the state, over $60 billion, all of that money, all those wind panels, all those solar panels and wind turbines, they might. They went to. They went to Cancun with Ted Cruz. They were not available. It was just you know. Oh, oh well, don't blame them. No one counted on them. Well, then why are we spending all this money on them? I mean, yeah. it's just nuts. 
Well, I mean, I see it as this big Ponzi scheme. Why are we spending money on it? Because it's making a lot of people rich at the expense of the country. You know, it's like we've create we built up, um, you know, a wonderful electric grid here in, in the United States. But ever since, uh, let's say, like 1970, we've been letting it uh, decay. We've been letting it fall apart. And there are some people who are getting rich on that decay of our national asset, which is our electric grid, which, as you accurately point out, is the basis of an, our entire civilization, our, our entire wealth of our of our nation. And it's we got to kick these parasites off. Right. I mean, it's deeply dangerous. Yeah, I mean, it is deeply dangerous. And I think that 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 idea of parasitic force, I think that that's exactly right as well. And yet these com- these outfits, these this the anti-industry industry, their revenues continue to grow and grow dramatically. And so they're getting funding from some of the richest people in the world who are writing them checks for 10, 20, 30 million dollars a year. I mean, these are staggering sums of money. Well, so why if these people are already so rich, like Bezos, uh, Bloomberg, you know, if they're already gajillionaires, why are they doing why are they doing this to our grid? Um, do they want to see us fail? Do, do, is it really that they need to make more money at this point? Like, well, I, I just don't like what, how do they, I think it's, how do we I, well, okay. Up? So what, why are they doing it? Well, I think there's some, this is, you know, like climate indulgences, right? Mm. You know, that they're rich. And so Bezos can give a billion dollars to different environment, you know, different green, you know, different NGOs, um, you know, like NRDC and he, and and Environmental Defense Fund, and he gave them both huge checks, hundred million dollars a piece, I think. But then he goes and builds a five hundred foot yacht that has another seventy or eighty million dollar yacht that is supports the big yacht. Yeah. So he can go sk- sail around, and I guess he just feels like, well, this buys me some CO two indulgence here. I'm not going to get. They aren't going to write reports about Amazon's carbon footprint, and they haven't. And so yeah. it may be just that simple. I mean- um, feel good about themselves you think i mean you talked to joel kotkin and um who i love joel kotkin he's amazing he is great i i actually made a film called- he's a he's a grumpy son of a gun though i will say that <laughs> I, I he might be grumpier his- than me <laughs> is he i read his book on um uh the new neo-feudal uh yeah i forget the title of it, it was about neo-feudalism it was a great the- book though yeah um and it it really summarized a lot of this climate aristocracy uh, group, um, and and he, you have a quote from him in one of your Substacks about how he likened it to sort of like the the Catholic uh, era of sort of. Uh, it, it, to me, the climate stuff really does feel like a new religion um, for rich people, you know, who might be in this sort of who are in this post religious world, right, where. Um, religion is not is not popular anymore but it's kind of been replaced with a new form of religion where it's like oh i'm i'm giving my penance to the climate or whatever i'm not sure it's it's hard to justify you have to be i guess you really do have to be so disconnected from the masses um to say no you can't have a gas stove but i can have a i can have a private jet for my private jet for my yacht for my third home for my you know things like that or be uh, Michael Bloomberg and have a dozen homes. Yeah. And while he was mayor of New York, he would fly to Bermuda everywhere, the Bahamas every weekend, right? And yet he's the one saying the climate crisis, you know, climate change is the biggest challenge we face. Well, oh, okay, well, that's handy. You're worth $50 billion or whatever, and your jets are burning hundreds of thousands of gallons of jet fuel every year. But us plebeians, us, you know, low class, us serfs, we can't do that. But I mean, to your point, Fox, I think there is a lot of overlap here. And Michael Schellenberger has pointed this out and Joel has and others. But there is a lot of overlap when you look at it through this lens of belief and deliverance and penance that climatism is very similar to uh, uh, Catholicism and Christianity in these ideas of penance. Right. Oh, we've we've done too. We've lived too well. We've we've done too. We've done too much. We have to go back. We have to go back to the time of innocence, back to the garden. We have to use less, do less, be happy with less. Mm. And the way we do that in part is we buy carbon indulgences or we call them carbon credits. Mm. You know, that this is part of, you know, 
this whole thing, carbon credits, uh, Doomberg had a good piece on Substack the other day. Martin Luther would have recognized carbon credits. <laughs> this is like, this is an indulgence. This is like, oh, go and go and sin no more. Well, okay, well, but I just, I just flew to Fiji and I'm going to buy a carbon indulgence and so right. a carbon credit and so it doesn't matter anymore. Well, it doesn't work that way. Or, or eating meat is not okay for, oh, yeah. for regular people to do anymore. Unless you can afford regenerative agriculture, grass-fed beef, then it's okay. You know, or, they... fake, or fake meat, even better, right? right? Which is the other thing, which I've had, and I kind of like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not into it. I, you know, I was a vegetarian in my child, like from my childhood up until age 19, and then I realized this is kind of silly, <laughs> and I've never looked back ever <laughs> since. I, I like meat. I like meat, and they're, they're gonna have to take the gas stoves and the meat out of my cold dead hand <laughs> and my and my gas car too i mean the cars I, and and that is something i think is a big issue uh is that they're trying to electrify everything now and this was brought up last night as well locally uh this is being brought up by people with common sense is that okay they're 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 requiring everyone to electrify everything and passing all these laws, but there's a huge gap in how that electricity is going to be provided because nothing's getting built or not enough is getting built to right. make up for that electricity. Yeah. No, there's no doubt about it. And that, that, and, and this is the other disconnect. And I wrote about this on my Substack, robertbrice.substack.com, but subscribe, it's free. Um, in this piece, EPA v. The Grid, and here comes the EPA uh, earlier this month, this is May 11th, issues a proposed rule that would effectively could eliminate hydrocarbon generation on the electric grid in America. And this came almost exactly a month after the same agency, the EPA, proposed another new rule that could force automakers in America to produce two-thirds of their cars would have to be electric. So... There's this just massive disconnect between this idea of from where we will we get our energy? From where will we produce our power? What What is your scenario? Explain it and explain it slowly because I'm from Oklahoma. I'm a little stupid. <laughs> you know, what? what is the plan here? But there doesn't seem to be any sensibility about that or any understanding of what is going to be required to make this transition. And that's an overused phrase, overused word. This transition away from hydro uh, from away from hydrocarbons. So I, I know you're not beholden to any any party, and you're probably you know not beholden to any politician. But I just want to review, you know, lately like what what are the things that the different candidates are saying to confront this this challenge sure. that you're describing. So Biden, you just described his administration, what you know his appointees, what they're doing in the EPA. Um, I heard a, another perspective, you know, from Trump. He was asked a question about how Americans are supposed to afford energy. He said three words. He said, drill, baby, drill. Yeah. And then uh, the other perspective that uh, I just heard about yesterday, uh, RFK Jr. has for a long time um, been an advocate for uh, uh, a uh, countrywide electrical grid that features, that is completely deregulated, um, kind of like how California was, a, he was instrumental in deregulating California's energy grid. Um, which led to Enron, but his theory is that you know the the problem of intermittency will be solved by having a nationwide electrical grid where you could have let's say you know we're in we're in New York State it's a cloudy rainy day with no wind but it's a windy day in Texas and if we have a nationwide grid that uh, all that you know abundance wind energy is going to get zipped up to New York State. It, do you have any opinion about if that's uh, plausible or if that's you know a good a good plan? Well, Alex, again, you know this is uh, and it's a good question. And you know uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. was at the NRDC and he cheered. Remember the closure of the Indian Point nuclear plant. So for that alone, I will never vote for him. Right, <laughs> and, and forget that he's an anti-vaxer and pretty much a quack of all you know. And that the only thing that his only qualification is his last name is Kennedy, and that's the only thing that he brings to this idea of running for president. But this idea of a nationwide grid, well, let me find a couple of quick things. One is, I'm, I live in Texas, right? I'm not bragging about Texas. I'm from Oklahoma. But Texas has its own grid. Well, why do they do that? Well, because they're Texas, you know, and the Texans like to be Texans, right? You know, we're not going to be part of the bigger thing right here. We're going to do it ourselves. Okay, I get it. 
But if you have one national grid instead of three, which is what we have, the Eastern Interconnect, the Western Interconnect, and ERCOT, well, then you make the entire system then more fragile because you have just one network, right? So I think having independent networks is a strategic uh, advantage. It's not, it, it, or I will say it makes us less, a little slightly less vulnerable, right? So, you know, if you're a bad guy, you know, Al-Qaeda or, you know, some Osama bin Laden wannabe, you'd want the U.S. to have one system and rely on one system instead of having to rely on three, right? You can do more damage with it's only one system. I was an environmentalist. <clears throat> but second, this presupposes, as uh, so many of these other scenarios, this hand-waving of, oh, well, we'll just connect them all and we'll build a whole lot of high-voltage transmission out there, you know, in flyover country. Yeah. Well, that ain't happening I mean, over and over across the country, and I've written about this as well on my Substack, robertbryce.substack.com, out of transmission, a piece I published a few weeks ago. It's almost, it's not impossible to build high voltage transmission in America, but it's extraordinarily difficult. And especially if you're going to try and do it on an interstate basis, right? And so you have, again, Jesse Jenkins at Princeton, Mark Jacobson, you know, the, the New York Times publishing pieces saying, oh, well, we just need to build tens of thousands of miles of new high voltage transmission. Well, I'm sorry, you don't know what the F you're talking about. Not, even if you had FERC authority, even if you had enough wires, even if you had enough poles, there's not enough labor, skilled labor to do the job. And I'm, that's something else I've been researching lately and talked to a friend of mine in Iowa today about the shortage of electric linemen. You know, there's wow. no... There's this disconnect between the physical reality of what actually has to live in the physical world and a lot of these policy ideas and a lot of hand-waving of, well, this is how we should do it. Yeah. Do you think it, do you think it's even possible, though, to get energy from Texas to New York State without massive amounts of loss and waste along the way? Well, we do it with pipelines. I mean, you know, we, we you know, Texas gas and southeast southwestern gas goes to, you know, the East Coast all the time. Now, there is an old saying in the truism in the energy business, it's easier to move molecules than it is electrons. Yeah. So I don't doubt that we could build a, you know, a high voltage DC grid that could move electrons, you know, uh, you know, hundreds or even thousands of miles. But yes, to your point, Alex, a lot of energy gets lost in the process. And, and, and back to what I said earlier, you know, we have other concerns in America. These, the, you know, the issue of the the grid is only one of them. So, if we'll speed ahead to okay, well, what what should we do if we're serious about decarbonization and serious about climate change? What should we do given the constraints on the grid that we have? Build nuclear plants at the site of existing coal and gas plants. That's where use the existing grid to the extent that we can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think about the, the transmission line fantasy too, and. It's all somebody's backyard. And also the, the same people that are into 100% renewables are also, they have, you know, if you talk to some of them, they have some interesting ideas about, you know, their brain waves getting affected by uh, wire, you know, nearby wires and about like various, you know, invasive things that could happen to them if there's electricity and wires near them. So I, I don't know if it's politically possible cover crisscross all of the United States with transmission lines. I think any kind of uh, thing that you do in regards to the energy grid, the transition or whatever you want to call it, um, is going to take a lot of political willpower. It's just a matter of who it's operating on behalf of. Are we operating on behalf of like making Americans richer or are we operating on behalf of making Americans poorer at the expense of, you know, these billionaires with climate grief? And who want to pay penance, pay penance to their climate god, or, or whatever. <laughs> well, I think that that's part of it. But I think you know, again, you know, one thing that I keep saying is we need sobriety when we're looking at our energy and power systems. And instead, what we're getting is a lot of kind of drunken kind of policy. And I would say that's the right word. I mean, you know, within a month of within a month, the EPA issues a rule saying. You have to, uh, the automakers have to build electric vehicles. And a month later, they publish a new proposed rule that would undermine the grid upon which all of those electric vehicles would depend. So w what is the left hand doing? Does the left hand talk to the right hand? Or yeah. is it even talking to the, you know, the FERC commissioners who a week before the May 11th rule was put out by the EPA, 
the FERC commissioners appeared before the Senate and said, we're facing a reliability crisis on our electric grid. And those are the words they used, a reliability crisis. Yep. And so we need a, we need more systemic thinking about where we are and where we're going. And unfortunately, that's in short supply. Yeah. We, so maybe what you're saying is like we need somebody rational in the EPA as heading the EPA, right? Oh, I mean, you crack me up, Fox. Come on now. You're cracking me up. What? <laughs> <laughs> you know what scares me about RFK running um, is that I'm afraid what the end result is going to be him being appointed ahead of EPA. That's that's my real fear because he's been considered for the job before under Obama. He was help, He helped Al Gore campaign and he was, you know, going to potentially be rewarded with that spot under Gore if he won. Um, so this idea that, I don't know, uh, the, uh, the idea of him becoming head of EPA scares the ever-loving shit out of me. Um because I think like, you're right. Uh, this is like a war of of reality and logic, and there's so much money, it, and it's not just in the NGOs. It's in the media too. The media and the NGOs are hand in hand in pushing this propaganda against the masses, who are the last check and balance against what's happening. Right? I mean, where do we go from here? How do we? How do we get people to click into reality like this? Well, I think that's a good point, Fox, about the the the, the close ties between the media and the these NGOs. And you know, I'm an old guy, right? I'm, I turned 63 here in a couple of months, so I've been in journalism my whole career. I've never had a real job. I've done it for more than 30 years, and I understand how the system works, how the media business works, and so. Who do you, who are the reporters that are doing the reporting, like on say the EPA rule? Um, so there were a lot of there was a lot written, right? A lot of articles that were responding to that that piece, right? And and or the EPA's proposal, but they're largely written by, and I you know I don't mean not being mean here, but they're by a lot of reporters who are you know in their thirties, maybe their twenties, they're liberal arts graduates from Middlebury, or you know they they're journalism graduates. They don't have any scientific training. They don't have any engineering training. They don't know anything about energy and power systems. And they have a deadline by five o'clock. They have to write an article and they have to explain what this is. Yeah. But there's no context. And so that's what I hope to do. I, I, I work very hard to try and provide context for what's going on. Like, uh, so in the EPA v. the grid, I, you know, I watched our, our paid attention to the Senate hearing. And then I see this new thing a, a week later from the EPA. I'm saying, why is no one connecting these two? These two belong together. Yeah. And I'm writing a piece now about uh, alternative energy, what are, I'm calling it alt energy's China syndrome. Well, so the EPA is mandating EVs. Well, where are the magnets coming to build the EVs? From China. And there's a Commerce Department report that came out in 2020 talking about this vulnerability. Another DOE report talking about 2022, about the reliance on China for all of these magnets that are needed for right. EVs. Why isn't that being discussed? Right. So I think it's just very important that, we, again, we think we need policymakers, we need decision makers to be thinking about our system of systems, because that's where, how we live, right? You know, right. the system at the grocery store, right? It's an amazing thing. The supermarket, I, I go to the supermarket and sometimes I look around and think, this is fucking incredible. You know, there are tens of thousands of things from all over the world here, and I can pick any one of them. I've got four, four different kinds of hair braid ties. You know, how does this even work? It's because there are these networks of networks of people and businesses working together to bring me this incredible yep. variety of stuff that I can afford and take home with me. And I can drive in this amazing vehicle. 60 miles an hour on gasoline that costs less than $3. I mean, it's just, in, we live amazing lives, but we've gotten so fat and comfortable, we for, we forget the basis of it. Yeah, modern technology, modern era, it's so amazing. People oh my think, God. It's a, think it's a terrible, they get they get Ted Kaczynski pilled, and they think that it's, <laughs> you know, it's a the worst thing that ever happened uh, to the human race, and it's it's a, it's a miracle that we, what we live in. Yeah, it is amazing. Up, what you bring up about China, too, is that, um, in China, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative, what, when they do economic development projects with other countries, you know, they're pushing for what they call win-win cooperation. And I don't have a problem with working with, with 
stuff of, you know, that we use in the United States coming from China or buying things from China, doing trade, you know, uh, good fair trade with, with China. Um, I have a problem though when it's when it's win lose because we're voluntarily, uh, we're, you know, we're mandating that we buy that we go into debt to buy all this stuff that makes us lose because we're crippling our own energy grid. We're crippling our, our country's own ability to produce things and to raise the standard of living for people. I want to work with China on win-win cooperation. For example, China is the country that's making the most nuclear plants, um, both in their own country and in other countries. And Russia too. Russia's making uh, the second most number of nuclear plants. Right. And they have far more expertise at this point about making nuclear plants um, and uh, the latest designs, the latest uh, technology. And imagine if we could work with them to rebuild our country so that we can win too, and that we could have abundant, cheap energy to support our own industry and have our own innovation. And help Africans develop too, yeah. you know, third world develop their yeah, industry. And, and, and I'm not a China basher. I'm not, that doesn't interest me. It leaves me cold. I'm, you know, China's going to do what, China's going to do what makes sense for China. Yeah. But what we have to be clear too, I think is, you know, that, Yes, China is is doing amazing things on the nuclear front. There is no doubt about it. But China is also building more coal plants than any other country in the world. And yep. they're building about one a week. So while they are leading the world when it comes to this move toward nuclear, they're also continuing to build out new coal. And this is the other part that we need to think, you know, sobriety about, well, where are we? What's really going on? We are not the only player in the global economy. And, you know, there was that memorable exchange a few days ago between Senator Kennedy from Louisiana and David Turk, the assistant head of the DOE. And Kennedy's saying, well, we're going to spend all this money. What? How much is this going to affect global temperature? And Turk was like, well, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, and we're only 13%. Turk kept saying, we're only 13%. We have to show the rest of the world the way to go. And I'm just sitting there thinking, man, you think the rest of the world is going to follow us? They're going to do what is suitable for them. Let me just give you one quick scenario. So again, I'm very lucky in my life. I, you know, I've been able to travel the world, and I'm, I consider myself just incredibly fortunate. Well, I was in Japan in in February and March for two weeks. What is Japan doing? They're reviving their nuclear industry slowly. They've reopened ten reactors, but they are also building TEPCO, the same company, Tokyo Electric Company. They are the company that owns Fukushima Daiichi. They are building a 1.3 gigawatt coal-fired power plant on Tokyo Bay. Today, coal-fired power plant. This is in Japan, the home of the Kyoto Protocol. And I wrote about this on my substack, Japan no Kyoto. They they are not going to kill their economy by chasing climate goals. This is very clear. So this is Japan, one of the most homogenous, most kind of national, a lot of nationalism in Japan. A lot of people, they, they believe in supporting each other and their country, a lot of self-sacrifice. They're not going to do, kill their economy in the name of climate change. So why would we? Yeah. I don't think Americans want to. I don't think Americans want to. They're, we're just, most people are not presented with the very basic information. They're They're pummeled constantly. And I think you were kind of alluding to this before about, you know, you are, and and that's why we admire what you're doing so much is that like, you're actually taking your expertise as a journalist and putting the information out there. Cause it's such an, we're, we're swimming upstream against this stuff. Right. I mean, it's, it's caught, we have common sense on our side and I think the American people on our side. Um, but it is such a huge battle. We're going up against tons and tons of billions of dollars, billions of dollars. Ten, ten, tens of billions. And you see this yeah. with the Inflation Reduction Act or hundreds of billions, right? Where there, you know, the estimates I've seen $391 billion in tax credits available for this clean energy stuff, right? Well, oh, and then the EPA rule I mentioned. So what is that EPA rule on power plants? Well, it is going to require utilities to either pick between carbon capture and sequestration, which doesn't exist, or green hydrogen, green hydrogen, which doesn't exist. Well, so, but what is this doing? You're not improving the quality of my electricity that's, you know, running this light or this 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 microphone. All you're doing is making it more expensive and more complicated. And so that's a problem, you know, and I I just wonder sometimes, I'd love to, if I had a chance to interview Xi, Xi Jinping or Putin or, you know, somebody else, or, you know, what do you think of the climate policy in America? You think it's doing the right thing? You know, when they're sitting back and saying, those guys are nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, what they're doing 
at least from my my impression, is that because they are they are still you know they're not islands they're reliant on global markets, and in order to get investment into your country, you do have to check some boxes for ESG. So I think on some on some levels, um, they are they are playing the game, and you know I I think there are a lot of true believers in those countries too. They're just not allowed to run rampant in the country because both Russia and China have cracked down on NGOs, on outside NGOs. Um, that's why, you know, I'll say George Soros uh, says that Xi Jinping is the greatest threat to open societies because China uh, has, they, they say, oh, you can't just come into our country and just say whatever you want and, you know, trick people into wanting to destroy their own country. In the United States, we have no such problem, which is why, you know, your work on anti-industry industry is uh, so useful for understanding that because especially children. Children are being pummeled every day with messages that say, you're going to die in a climate catastrophe. You're not going to have kids. Everything is hopeless. So you might as well, you know, block traffic, throw, throw paint on paintings and, you know, vote for the most far left candidate you can. You can burn it all down. Nothing matters. And it's a, it's a tragedy because the rest of the country, if you look at the rest, I'm sorry, the rest of the world, the rest of the world sees a future. And th that's one of my barometers for if a country sees a future is, are they still building nuclear plants or even coal plants? Because that means that, oh, people are going to need energy in the future. We want to raise people's standard of living. Um, I, I like what you're uh, saying there, Alex, about the, you know, do they see a future? Because I wonder whether, I think my friend Emmett Penny, who I think has been a guest on your show, and I, 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 I have a lot of respect for Emmett. I think the work he does is really good. He's a really sharp guy, and I, yep. I, I consider him a friend of mine. And um this idea of presentism, right? So that these soup throwers and these extinction rebellion people and, and, and just stop oil and the rest of them. I look at these kids and I say that as someone who has a, a, a grown adult children. And I look at these kids and I think you don't know anything. If you don't know any history. You don't have a, you don't think there's a future, but you don't know anything about how privileged you are relative to other people in the rest of the world. And so if I were the king or if I were the judge and I and these people get arrested, I would say, OK, here's your sentence. You are going to go to live in one of the rural villages that I visited in India when I was there about seven years ago. And you're going to be required to uh, go into the fields with the local women and you're going to stay there for two years <laughs> and when you get back, you're going to be required to write an apology letter to all of society for your rank stupidity about how <laughs> dumb you are and how you love yeah. electricity and you are sorry for ever, you know, imposing your stupidity on the rest of the society. Or it will put you on a desert island and you won't have any electricity, you won't have any kerosene, mm -hmm. no gasoline. You will have to rub sticks together to make fire and you will have to bear, live a subsistence life. And I want you to come back and I want you to write a, a an apology letter to the CEO of Exxon Mobil and beg his forgiveness. That's, 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 <laughs> that's what hilarious. I want. I mean, no, I'm a our, benevolent dictator, but that's what I would require. <laughs> our most recent episode, uh, you should let's check it out. It's uh, African farmer named Jasper Murchogu. Oh yeah, sure. And he... Uh, He's a big fossil fuel guy, especially, you know, he, he talks about energy, uh, electricity a little bit, but primarily with agriculture. Yeah. He talks about how um, fossil fuel inputs into agriculture are so important and that all the activists that are calling for, you know, carbon reductions in agriculture. They have no idea what they're talking about, both from a food production standpoint and also just from a labor standpoint. So yeah. He offers what he, he offers an inter, a very valuable intern <laughs> for uh, climate activists. Um, if they if someone pays him six thousand dollars a month, they can come out to Africa, live in his village, and work for him uh, in the fields using only regenerative and organic methods. I hope someone takes them up with on. no fossil fuels involved, and they can learn all the tech, all the the indigenous techniques that uh, his people have developed. Because you know, he talks about it, it's backbreaking labor. You know, people yeah. yeah to get to get water for the day, you have to walk two miles and stand there for an hour and like let the water collect, then you walk back. Oh, you know, I, know. Just, I, I, I love that idea because I just see these, you know, these fresh faced, you know, 20 somethings and they're sitting there and so smug after they've thrown soap on the, you yeah. know, or soup on the painting. And they just think they're so 
Unlimited you know, they're, they're so um, privileged and so smug about who they are and what they've done. And they're like, see, you took away my future and I'm going to do this. And yeah, I'm going to go to jail. And, you know, and then they get a slap on the wrist and they're out. And I'm like, no, right. Go live with Jesper. I think that would be awesome. And you can't leave. You are not allowed to leave. Yeah. And, you you know, have, and, and when you get done, you come and you stand in from in the dock and you tell us how you feel about hydrocarbons now, yeah. Miss, Miss, Miss Smarty Pants. Tell us what you feel about nuclear energy now. I think and it's the greatest thing ever. <laughs> that would be, I would love that. I would buy a ticket to see that. But, I, that but, would be great. That's, but it, I think that's why we like the show Naked and Afraid so much is because yeah, these people right. go out into the wilderness and they're like, it's yeah hard to live mother oh. nature is a bitch she will kill you <laughs> and uh you know you bring up this like oh you took away our future is a line that they say a lot yeah uh, which is so backwards because you were given this future by people right. who suffered in the past to get here and and you bring up this point about people who don't know they don't know their own path these kids don't know their own past they don't know there's, the sacrifice there's no history in our journalism either I mean, yeah. and there's no history even in the, like I said, with the EPA story, right? The EPA proposed rule. The journalists don't even refer back a month, much <laughs> less last year. Yeah. I mean, they don't even know what what happened a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Oh, the same agency said we have to use EVs. Well, now the agency is saying we can't use hydrocarbons to generate power. Well, doesn't that matter? But there again, there was no effort to connect any of the history with what is actually going on. And this is the part why we need this sober look. We need a step back and say, where are we? Where have we been? And where do we need to go? And we have to look at it through the lens of reliable energy and power because they are the basis of our society. Yep. And we are, as you said, uh, uh, Fox, I mean, it just we live in this incredible abundance. And I think it's that... Um, that it, that incredible abundance has made our, a lot of people's thinking. I'm not going to say my thinking, and I'm not going to say your thinking. It's made a lot of people's thinking just sloppy and careless. Yeah. And that oh, now we we're living too well. We need to go back. Well, you go back. I'm staying right here. Yeah. <laughs> you go live with Jesper, and you go do that. But yeah. don't block the highway, and don't des desecrate and de and and um, uh, 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 what what is the right word? Um, assault our, our most important cultural symbols for your little whining little little pout fest go you know go go away go far away please <laughs> yeah i know right yeah vandalism uh, is the word i was like would vandalize go vandalize yourself right no, and go are. do it somewhere by yourself i don't need your 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 public vandalism of our 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 streets our roads our highways our art museums Go go vandalize yourself somewhere else. That's, I mean, exactly. that's fine. Go 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 despair on your own, but don't make me watch it. That's exactly what it is, and it's it's eco terrorism. Yeah, um, and they used to call it monkey wrenching in the seventies, um, and now it's become you know a favorite blockbuster movie. Although I don't think that the blowing up the pipeline movie became a blockbuster hit, but the fact that somebody made like a Hollywood film about did you see yeah. this? Yeah, how, to, oh, blow yeah. how to how to blow up a pipeline based on Andreas Malm's book. Yeah, yeah sure. I have to pirate it. I will not pay a cent to anybody to see it, but I will. I'll pirate that. Well, and before yeah. the before the film, like when they were screening the initial doing the initial screening, they had pamphlets they were handing out t telling people this is to actually make this kind of thing seem more palatable to people. Yeah, that, so right. Like blow up pipelines or do eco terrorism, and yeah, it, because eco terrorists used to be the bad guys. Now they're the good guys. Right, now they're the good guys. Yeah, and who are the bad guys? It's the people who produce the molecules and electrons that allow society to work, right? That the yeah. the energy sector, and I'll say this because I you know, I've I've matured in my career. Some of the earliest articles I published in, in major publications were criticizing the oil and gas industry, and they're not above criticism, believe me. Sure. But when I look at that industry now, and particularly uh, particularly American industry, right, in virtually the, uh, every other country in the world, the oil and gas industry is controlled by the national government. Here, we have private ownership of mineral rights and a huge, uh, you know, uh, uh, industry that is uh, made up of a lot of private individuals, wildcatters, you know, small oil and gas producers. Now, they're becoming fewer and fewer because the industry is consolidating and so on. 
But still, there's something heroic about them and what they do. And I've seen that, and I think I, that's the right word, heroic. Whereas you look at this, and to contrast that, and I'm not here to just blow smoke up the dress of the oil and gas guys, but you contrast that with what's happening in the uh, in the wind and solar businesses, it's completely dominated by major corporations, including Mid-American Energy, a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway. Mm. Uh, NextEra Energy, publicly traded company, which has been soaring in value because they don't pay corporate income tax and won't pay for years. Well, that's so there are no there are no little mom and pop companies that are really in the oil or in the wind and solar business in a big way. Yeah, but there are a lot of mom and pop shops that are in the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Well, an interesting thing is that you talk about this in your anti-industry industry article, which is fantastic. Everybody needs to go read it. I'll link to it in our show notes, but. Um, the biggest, by far, the biggest NGO is the Rockefeller Brothers Fund that is yeah. opposing industry. Right. Now, Rockefeller, how did they get all their money? <laughs> now, this is the the basis of the Exxon, uh, Exxon Mobil fortune, right? That it right. was the uh, uh, standard they are, oil. They are, the, they are the fossil fuel guys. I know. That... Well, and, and who's funding some of these, you know, the uh, these uh, these climate extremists, the Just Stop Oil crowd? It's a group that uh, I was just looking at him the other day. One of their big funders is Eileen Getty. Well, who was her grandfather? That was yeah. J. Paul Getty, right? Who made his first fortune in Oklahoma in the oil and gas business, right? And then made his fortune with Getty Oil. So there is some kind of, you know, behind all of this, uh, a lot of this NGO money. And you're right. The Rockefeller Brothers Fund uh, is is funding a lot of these these NGOs and their and the you know the activism that they're doing and anti industry industry is a lot of that money's coming from the Rockefeller brothers, but it's not just them you know it's their other you know huge fortunes, including Lorene Powell Jobs who is behind this group called Climate Imperative, spending two hundred million dollars a year at a stroke a brand new group you've never heard of has a budget as big as that of the uh, of the Sierra Club. And and there and no one knows about them, and they they don't reveal anything on their website. They don't tell who they're funding. It's all dark money. That's and when so, you know it's real money. Yeah. They don't so without any information. <laughs> and so and so that's the that's the other part of this. That oh well, you know, Exxon Mobil's giving money to this group, or Chevron's giving money to that group. It pales. It's a fraction, a tiny, insignificant soup song of nothingness. Yeah. Compared to the amount of dark money that's flowing into groups like, including. Third Act, which is Bill McKibben's new group. Yep. Um, they're not revealing who their donors are. Why not? You know, what's good for the goose should be good for the gander here, shouldn't it? Yeah. I was, I was going to say really quick that, uh, you know, the, the premise that these people have too, where, where they say, oh, well, oil and gas companies, they just want to maximize their profits. So they want to, you know, drill as much as possible, pump, you know, get us addicted to fossil fuels so that we use more of it. You actually look at it like last year, we both had the, the, the industries had the highest profits that they've ever had, and they're drilling the least that they ever have. Right. They're not even, you know, because at, the incentives now are completely in the other direction, where they're making we're making you know hydrocarbons scarce, hard to come by, and hard to transport than ever by blocking all the pipelines. So now the spot prices of these things, when there's an emergency, the, the spot prices go through the roof. The companies are making more money than ever. But we have we're paying more for it, and we're our standards of living are, are getting lower. Well, it makes sense. They have to create an artificial scarcity so that their their market their price doesn't collapse for the commodity that they're providing. The certain you know, um, in order to actually maintain a profit on it, they have to control the abundance of it. It is an, it, they have to be anti-abundance in order to maintain. Yeah. a profit on, on the industry. Um, well, let me I toss think... in a, just a couple of quick things, if I could, yeah. because, yeah. you know, we talk about the profits of the oil and gas industry. Well, yeah, they're on an absolute basis. They've been pretty, they've been big. I don't, you know, I can't quote them back to you, but let's look at it on a percentage of revenue. It's in the single digit percentages, right? And uh, as memory serves, it's a five to 8%. Apple's profit margins are in the 20 to 30% margin. The yeah. Googles and the, the big, you know, the big tech companies, their standard profit margins are far greater than those of the oil and gas industry. So there's this anti-capitalist tinge to a lot of this uh, climatism, right? But that anti-capitalist um, uh, attitude only applies to the hydrocarbon sector. Yep. Well, what about the tech sector? They're yep. supposedly clean tech and, you know, the rest of it. Well, 
they are using their profit margins are greater on a percentage basis than what the hydrocarbon crowd is getting. So, oh, you're only anti-capitalist if it involves one sector that you don't like. Yeah, and you know, and I can remember it was years ago. It was a CBS Evening News, Katie Couric or somebody. She's gets on Exxon Mobil made six billion dollars per second last. You know, yeah. you know, it was like, well, okay, why don't you give us something to compare that to that makes some sense? And instead, it's just this. Uh, kind of indictment of the idea of the of the industry. Well, the industry is a big business. I mean, it's just an enormous industry. Well, of course, when they make money, they make a lot. And no one was no one was holding a bake sale for ExxonMobil a few years ago when they were losing fantastic amounts of money either. Yeah. So yeah. let's be clear about what's going on. Well, I think that yeah. I mean, what what always comes to my mind is that it doesn't have to do it's i think people get hung up on like oh the fossil fuel industry as if fossil fuels are this thing that has a, a mind of its own it's people controlling right. resources fossil right. fuels are just a technology and yeah. that we should unleash this technology however we have to whether it's nationalizing it or you know market incentives so that it so that like people can access the technology and if, if the market is not providing to nationalize as as other countries have found out very quickly, is um when who if you control these these resources, if it's in the, the hands of you know private entities, then this is what ends up happening. They get really really rich, um, and then they 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 keep them away from the masses. And we need to intervene and make sure that the masses can have access to this technology. It's not the technology that's the problem; it's how it's being distributed, right? Or how, how it's being facilitated. Well, I, would, I would put it slightly differently. And, but I think that, you know, the key thing that we need to keep in mind here is that we have to understand what is going to matter to the poor and the working class, right? And I talked about the issue of class and the regressive nature of a lot of this, or I mentioned it before. When we look at a lot of this climate policy, who's going to pay the most? Well, it's going to be the poor and the working class, right? They're, as I think about it, who, who's, who matters to me when I think about my work? Who do I care about? Mm. I care about the guys and the women who wear their names on their shirts. Those are the people I care about. The people who fix things, who, who turn wrenches, who grow things, who you know make things in America work that they have to go. They can't live in the keyboard economy like I do. And the keyboard, you know, I'm just really very lucky. Yeah. But, you know, what matters to them? It's cheap, abundant, reliable energy. And that and cheap being the absolute first thing on the list. And I remember very distinctly, this is about a, a couple of years ago, an acquaintance of mine. And uh, we got into this disagreement that became pretty unpleasant. But he said something, and this is a, you know, a guy here in Austin. He said, oh, energy's too cheap. And he said <laughs> it that way. And I just thought, okay, isn't that, isn't that handy? Isn't that easy for you to say who you live an incredibly privileged life in South Austin. You've got plenty of money. You travel, you know, at your whim and you think energy's too cheap. Well, why don't you compare that to the bricklayer or the carpenter or the guy who's laying the carpet in your, or the tile in your house? Ask him how much more he wants to pay for gasoline. And I think his answer is going to be nothing. I yeah. don't want to pay any more. So there is this elitism about this and this, this kind of, um, I think it's very pernicious and it's a very, very much about class and the people who are in that class have no concept of how they sound and how bad they sound when you repeat that back, because it is a, um, a very elitist anti-human kind of attitude. And it's one that is very dangerous. And I think it, it has a lot of purchase among these NGOs that we've been talking about. You've been listening to the Space Commune podcast. I'm your host, Fox, here with Alex. And today we've been talking to Robert Bryce. Robert, it's been awesome chatting with you. Um, you, you plugged your Substack right a few times, but please uh, plug plug whatever you want to right now. People, Where can people go find your work? Sure. Well, thank you. And it's a pleasure talking with you all. I love this stuff. I'm passionate about this. This is my life's work, and I am I care about it. And so I'm, I'm always happy to talk about it. Please to come on your podcast. Uh, robertbryce.substack.com is where I'm uh, guiding people to go. Uh, that's my 
uh, Substack. I'm writing only on Substack these days after all these years in journalism. Uh, but you can also find me I'm all over the interweb. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Instagram, on uh, YouTube. I have a website, robertbryce.com. I have a, our film, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, available on YouTube for free. Uh, so I am omnipresent on the Google. So look for me there. Space Commune is a media project by two upstate New Yorkers seeking an alternative to the degrowth and deindustrialization paradigm being thrust upon us by the Great Reset Agenda. We love our country, the United States of America, and take inspiration from our revolutionary founding. We want win-win cooperation with Russia and China in developing the world economy for all of humanity and to make America great again. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider joining our Patreon. We also make other content such as documentaries on YouTube and essays you can find on our website at spacecommune.com.